0: Okay, if you've got your Bibles, I'd like you to open them to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to continue this series. Someone asked me during the week, have I got a New Year's message uh, as we approach the end of this year and coming into the new. And I said, no, no, we'll just carry on. Um, every message is kind of a New Year message if you want it. And so uh, we'll just read the first six verses of chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians. Verse 1. Chapter 3, 2 Corinthians, Paul asks these questions. He begins with, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need as some letters of commendation to you or from you? You are our letters, written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tables of stone, but on tables of human hearts. Verse 4, Such confidence we have through Christ toward God, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives lives trust the Lord will add a blessing uh, to his word this morning. One of the real issues of life that plague us all from time to time is being confronted with a lack of expertise to do a job that needs being done. We all know this reality, right? Kevin's nodding his head there. That's good. We've got one friend. When my computer begins to have a mind of its own, Sharon's laughing now, I'm at a complete loss, so what do I do? I run to Josh. (laughs) Or when my vocab runs dry, I run to the dictionary in order to hopefully make myself more explicit. No matter who we are, folks, we soon discover what we're equipped to accomplish and what we are not. But closely associated with ability or lack of ability, generally speaking, is a confidence thing or a lack of confidence. Culture recognises a lack of confidence as being a super negative thing, as a hindrance to success and they give Lack of confidence, name tags like a lack of self-esteem or or a failure to believe in yourself or a failure to live out your dreams and other name tags that you would be familiar with. In other words, culture promotes self-confidence. It promotes self-esteem. It promotes believing in yourself. It promotes living out your dreams as being the ideal model for successful living. And even as believers, we have to acknowledge that there's some truth in this, right? There is some truth in this. That is, if we measure success on worldly standards. Top athletes, for instance. Businessmen, world leaders, they thrive on this model. They really do, they thrive on it. Our whole economy... Financially, rises or falls simply on this basis, on the confidence or the lack of confidence of a country's people. But is this the right way of valuing confidence for life and godliness? Are we as believers to be self-confident in order to be successful in life and ministry that brings glory to God? That's a good question. Or is there to be a mix of self-confidence and and, and confidence in God's promises in order for everything to work out the way God wants it? Is that how it is to be? These are important questions, right? The Corinthian church unknowingly answers these questions for us, or at least some of them. Because what we see them doing is they were floundering and placing their confidence, confidence where it should have been. Their confidence for life and ministry, it was being blown about from pillar to post. It had no fixed abode. It was in one place, one moment, and and then with something else, another. Earlier, you will remember their confidence was in their heroes. Even though their heroes were the apostles, and we read how divisions came in amongst them, where some were saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, and even some saying, I am of Christ. Their confidence at that stage was a man-centered confidence. Their confident loyalty lay in men, as I said, even though some of them were apostles. Even having these great, mighty men of God as their confidence and their mainstay for life and ministry, it was still a misguided, insufficient confidence. We learn in our text that Paul was now being held at arm's length. And he is being treated with suspicion by a good number in the Corinthian church. This was owing, by the way, to false prophets who had come into the church, more than likely from Jerusalem. They had come into the church and they disrupted the Corinthians' confidence once again for life and ministry. Their confidence in Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, verse 1 of this book, their confidence in him and his ministry, it was hijacked by manipulative hucksters, as we looked at last time. And these hucksters, they watered down the truth. And as a result, these fickle believers now questioned the apostles' apostolic credentials they questioned his character. They questioned his message. Even though the apostle had spent 18 months working with them, planting the church and nurturing them in the faith and doing that lovingly and sacrificially and obediently. And sad to say, Paul's whole second letter, which as you know is really the fourth that was written to them, two of them we haven't got on an inspired record, But sad to say this whole second letter deals with this painful issue of the Corinthians' mistrust of him as God's servant to them. We read in 2 Corinthians 13 and 3, Paul refers to this when they demand evidence that he truly represents Jesus among them. And he says there, since you are seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me, You see, folks, their trusting confidence was way short of where it should have been. By the way, Paul was not interested in creating a following. He wasn't heating himself up as some big spiritual guru where they could cling to. He wasn't doing that. He wanted to preach the gospel so that people's confidence might be in Christ. Even Paul himself asked that rhetorical question that we looked at last time we were together back in verse 16 of chapter 2. Who is adequate for these things? In other words, who can we have sufficient confidence in to bring about success in life and ministry that brings glory to God? That's the question that Paul asks even himself. And Paul there doesn't point to himself. He doesn't even point to self-confidence, and nor does he point to a mixture of God's promises and any human ability. He points to God. He points to Christ alone, toward God alone, through faith in the gospel alone. We have that in verse 4. You see, Paul is not interested, and he just brushes off any personal attacks upon himself, in his person. But he gets vitally concerned And uptight, I might say, when those attacks affect the ministry of the gospel. And here in this massive digression that we looked at last time, from chapter 2, verse 12, right through to chapter 7, in this massive digression, this apostolic digression, this parenthesis, what Paul does and is doing is he defends the ministry. So how does Paul defend his ministry? So that readers can be sufficiently confident in God alone for life and ministry to give them glory. Well, we're going to be looking at this in number one. I've got credentials for life and ministry. We see this in verses one to three. Many business managers, when employing people, as you know, many of you will know, they stake a certain amount of confidence in credentials written on a CV or in a reference of something, some similar sort. But as we know, credentials written on paper, what happens is that they are put to the test, right? They are either proven false or they're proven true when that person puts theory into practice in the workplace. Like some of you have experienced in this last year. You see, the Corinthian church had been seduced by glowing credentials written on paper commending these false prophets who had come up from Jerusalem and into their church. They had held them before them. This is who we are. Look, and no doubt they had series of signatures on them. The false prophets' immediate concern, by the way, were to gain a following, even today. You see that. And one of the things that false prophets demanded in their gaining a following was to bring about a disconnect with any prior leaders that they might have had, which included the Apostle Paul. They wanted a disconnect there. And this meant that any any confidence in the Apostle Paul and his message and his ministry must be considered suspect and rejected. They succeeded in this. And as a result, the Corinthian church questions Paul's personal integrity and his authority as an apostle. They accused him of blowing his own trumpet without any bona fide written credentials that supposedly, supposedly would have proven his apostolic authenticity. So how does Paul respond to this? How does he he respond to this attack? He defends his apostolic authority by asking two questions in verse 1. He says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? Now the answer to both those questions is in the negative. He didn't need them. You see, Paul understood that some of the Corinthians were probably smarting and hurting at his rebukes and claim of authority in his first letter that he wrote them, or well, as we know our first letter, First Corinthians. This is what he said. This is one part of his, of his rebuke. First Corinthians 4, 14 to 16, it says, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. Paul was by divine right an apostle of Christ. That is a messenger, a specific and a special messenger from God sent to on a mission. And so he was... The Corinthians' authority, because he was God's mouthpiece to them, and he uses this father figure, not a title, but just a figure of a father, one who was in authority, like fathers should be in their homes today. And why is that? Is because they, the Corinthians, had believed and received the gospel that he preached. So Paul, in this, he debunks the idea that he needs cheap words written on paper. When he had greater evidence to prove his divine authority in Christ right in front of the people's noses. He argues that living credentials far exceed written ones. His living credentials were the Corinthian believers changed lives. Let me illustrate this. Over this last year, some of you have been employed and that employment beginning with a standard probation of three months in order to prove all that your curriculum vitae has stated, right? And after three months, hopefully, and as has been the case of some in our congregation, after three months are up, your employer being completely satisfied with you and your work Hands back you your CV. I don't want this anymore. It's an outdated, outmoded piece of paper. Your deeds and your work have sufficiently commended you over and above what any CV could ever do. That's how it is, right? Your boss's confidence in you is not based on written words anymore, but now his confidence is based on the work he has seen you do. This is the argument that Paul uses to the Corinthian church. The authenticity of his ministry is proven beyond doubt by the change seen in the lives of these once sinful, debauched people. And they were really bad folks. Let me give you a little bit of insight of what sort of debauchery these some of these folk were in. He writes of this in 1 Corinthians 6, 10 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous nor what, nor, will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, neither idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Listen to this. He carries on. Such were some of you. But you are washed, you have been sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the Spirit of God. This is what some of these folk once were in the Corinthian church. But now look at the radical changes. This is what Paul points to for his credentials and for them to confidently trust in his ministry. In other words, look at what God has done in you through the preached gospel. That's what he's saying here. He is clear that it is God who has accomplished all the changes in them. The freedom they enjoyed, the deliverance from from destructive lifestyles, all happened because Christ had changed them through the gospel. And so hence their confidence in Paul's ministry could be without doubt. Why? It was clearly ratified by what his ministry produced. It brought about radical life changes which glorified God. Hence there was no need for Paul to have a written commendation. And so what Paul does is he, he, he doesn't leave it there. He, he presses this better than a letter point home even further in verses 2 and 3. First of all, this better than a letter, was, it was a, this life change was a testimony for the Apostle Paul. And so what the Apostle Paul does here is he uses a play on words. He often does this. A little bit like that word picture that he used last time we are together where God's servants were seen as, as a fragrance of Christ or a sweet aroma back in 2.15. And here he says, You are our letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men. You see that? In other words, the believing, believing Corinthians we're not like some detached CV that you might put in your pocket or in your satchel, which may be true or false. No, the Corinthian converts were Paul and his team's letter of commendation. They were his C, they, they were the, their CV, if you like but they were written on their hearts. You hear that? They were written on their hearts. What this speaks of is, describes the tremendous affection that Paul and his team had for the Corinthian church. Paul affirms this later on in chapter 7 and verse 3, this affection that he had for them. He says, you are in our hearts to die together and live together. That's pretty affectionate, isn't it? Can't get better than that. But this living letter gets better, folks. It really does. You see, because they were not a testimony for Paul alone. In other words, they they were not like a private document for his and their eyes only. In other words, their radical life change from what they once were to what they are now, to be followers of Christ, even though they had a, had a whole lot of uh, uh, cleaning up to do. Their radical life changes was, was not just for Paul's eyes only and for them to keep in a closet. This living testimony of changed lives produced by the gospel was what? It was a testimony to all, their, all men. See that? A testimony to all men. So these living credentials were read and seen by all men wherever the Corinthians went. That's the idea. Let's just pause there, folks. Let's just pause here and have a little reflection by way of application. What message, what testimony has your life, has my life spelled out to those who have read us over this last year? Has your life, has my life been such a display, such a clearly written letter that it has given testimony of you being a follower of Christ? Has it been written with such clarity that it tells others that you are a servant of Christ and of one another within this local church? Is that what it's done? Have people read you with such clarity that they have seen the difference that the Lord has wrought in your life? Have they seen that? Believe it or not, our friends, our colleagues and our family, they read us like books. We are letters. So what have they read in 2015? Secondly, we see that It was a testimony for Christ. We see this in verse 3. And it says, And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone but on tablets of human hearts. That's from the ESV version. You see, the Corinthian converts were not only recommendations for Paul and his ministry, but they were also a recommendation of Christ. Every born-again believer is a letter from Christ. And so this carries some serious responsibility to everyone who claims to be a true Christian, right? Paul reiterates that the changed lives of the Corinthian converts were an open letter telling of the work of Jesus Christ, how he had done in them, and how God's grace had worked through them, and by faith they believed the preached gospel. And that brought about change. And hence all believers are a testimony for Christ. In other words, all believers, whether you like it or not, tell and speak of something of the character of Christ. Now that's serious, isn't it? In other words, so often the only Jesus people know and see, folks, is what they see and hear in and from you. Why is that? Because we are his letter of commendation. That's what it says here. We are his credentials to them. That's what it says here. And hence our our level of confidence in him tells either a powerful or a weak story. That's challenging. We want to tell powerful stories of Jesus Christ, don't we? Not weak ones. That makes living a pretty serious matter. So allow me to ask again, what kind of message does the letter of your life tell out? Is it like, as we discussed last time we are together, that sweet fragrance of Christ as we see in 2.15? Is it a letter that spells out something of the sweet character of Christ? These are good questions to challenge ourselves with, aren't they? Also, we see that that God's work in the gospel, it changes lives for His glory. His work is not, in other words, a a mixture of of human manipulation or or merely turning over a new leaf like many people will want to do at the uh, New Year's Eve. It's not that, or it's not following merely some man-centered religious notion. No, it's not that at all. God's work in salvation is a supernatural work. It's a miraculous work. That's why we can have full confidence in God's work because it is through the apostles. They were like the foundation stones. The chief cornerstone was Christ, but God, when he began and started the church, he used his apostles, special men, to kickstart the church, if you like. And they were given special powers to perform miracles and speak in different languages without even going to a language school. That's why we can have full confidence in God's work, because it was through them. His work is stamped and sealed, what does it say here? By the Spirit of the living God. You see that? That's better than any signature, isn't it? And where is the seal stamped? First, the negative. It's not stamped on tables of stone. That's what it says here. In other words... God's law, you know, where it talks about tables of stone here, there's obviously a reference to the, to the, uh, the law of God written on the stone when Moses went up, up to the mountain and got the law of God and he came down with it. He did it twice because he smashed the first lot up because of the sin of the people. But they were written on tables of stone. But you know what the tables of stone, you know what God's law proves? It's a perfect and a holy law, don't get me wrong here a perfect and a holy law, but the trouble is it's so perfect that, that no person ever apart from Jesus Christ has ever been able to keep it. You break one tiny little part of that law, as far as God's concerned, you're a breaker of the whole law. This is what the Pharisees, and this is what many religious people, even today, no matter what religion they belong to, they try and keep a law of morality or a good code of ethics in order to win approval from God, whoever he may be. But God has the final say, and any breaker of God's law says that you will pay for the sin which is eternal death in hell. But here's where the beauty of the gospel kicks in. Jesus Christ, he kept the law absolutely perfectly because he was sinless. And then he died. He paid the wages of a lawbreaker like you and I are. He died according to the law because he willingly and sacrificially bore our sin and it's just penalty for us. In other words, he died for our sin. That's the beauty of the gospel. And it's God's Holy Spirit alone that opens a person's eyes to see and understand and apply that truth to his heart. This is where God performs I call it spiritual cardio optic surgery. Okay? It's a surgery that causes our hearts to see the truth of the gospel and respond to it in faith. Wow, Christ died for me. And we bow in repentance and faith, and understanding that he is forgiven. And he writes this on the tables of human hearts. It's a stamp of God's Spirit that will produce. You know what it will produce? When that happens, folks, in all its genuineness, when that happens, it will produce a persevering life of faith. It will be a letter of Christ for all to see. That's why a believer can be read by their fruit. By their deeds. A good tree, folks, will not produce bad fruit, right? And a bad tree will not produce good fruit. That's what the Bible talks about. It uses that analogy. Jesus taught about that in in Matthew chapter 7 in his Sermon on the Mount. And that's exactly the same in the work in our lives. This is a divine work that brings about a radical change in our lives as it did among the Corinthians and it speaks volumes of testimony for Jesus Christ. But you know what? Something more amazing. God has chosen faithful servants as his means of performing this miraculous, heart-changing work of salvation. Imagine that. Think about that. How awesome is that? That is, Paul and his team were the channels that God used to serve up the gospel. It was like a meal that has ongoing ramifications of eternal life. That's what Paul means here when he says it is cared for by us in verse 3. He has the idea of serving up the gospel. And Paul knew that. He was just a servant. He was just a slave serving up what God had given and what God was doing. What an awesome responsibility. What a wonderful privilege. Folks, where does your personal confidence rest in all this? Is it your own personal ideas and opinions or is it in the God's power in the gospel? Because that alone proves itself through the credentials of a changed life. And that life will persevere in the faith. But let's get a little bit more personal. If you look into your own life, and perhaps to see no change, maybe you see no difference in you than the pagan that you work with. All I can do is urge you, as the Apostle Paul does in chapter 13 and verse 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Secondly, sufficiency for life and ministry. We see this in the last two verses you remember the question that Paul asked in 2.16, and who is adequate for these things? In other words, who is sufficiently adequate to make spiritual impact that changes people from within, whereby, whereby they become a letter of Christ? Who is sufficient for that? So we can ask, where and who can I place my confidence in? Is it some seminary training? Is it doing more Bible study? Is it more, more prayer? Or is it more spiritual discipline? Is that where we can place our confidence in? Look who Paul points to. He doesn't point to himself. The Corinthians were looking to human credentials, remember? They were looking to those with flowery, written accolades and are convinced that the Apostle Paul, because they had never seen anything about like that about him, that he is sorely lacking in this. Their confidence lay in men's words on paper, on human abilities. But Paul's confidence is, what does it say here in verse 4? Through Christ toward God. You see that? So Paul was absolutely confident, and so should we be, in the power of the gospel ministered through his servants to change lives. Simple, right? That's where a confidence should be. Paul's confidence in the gospel was tightly bound to his calling by God to preach the gospel. That is why he spoke so boldly. That is why nothing came across his path that he wasn't ready to just walk on through no matter what. That's why he spoke so courageously. That's why he spoke without partiality to whoever. No obstacle, persecution or difficulty could ever make Paul doubt the question of his calling by God to preach. He said in 1 Corinthians 9 and 16, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Paul was resolutely confident in his calling to preach. This was not some brass self-confidence that he was boasting in here, no. But it was confidence through Christ toward God. In other words, Paul is confident through Christ that his ministry in the gospel will bring about God's purposes. He said in 1 Corinthians five fifteen verse 10, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I laboured even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. He learned that sufficiency in ministry comes from God and if his life and ministry is to make a difference it's because of him not being a great speaker or not being whatever but it's because of him being empowered by the Holy Spirit within him he understood that serving the Lord was not about his human abilities he understood that he could do all things through Christ who strengthens him he wrote in the Philippians, chapter 4, verse 13. He understood that he was just a clay pot that he uses in another occasion. A clay pot. Not very attractive, right? And one of those things, you give it a toss. You might even, bit like our, our um, plastic plates that we use. We use once and toss away. He understood that he was just a clay pot, but my word, he was a clay pot ready and willing to be used, even if he had to be broken. For God's glory, he understood two Corinthians four seven. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from from ourselves. Now, folks, this begs the question again by way of application here: What and where does your confidence rest for life and ministry? I say that, life and ministry, because some people get this idea that ministry is only stuff what you do in the church or what you do here on Sundays or Thursday nights or whatever. No, but I'm talking about life in your workplace, in your home, wherever you go, on vacation. What is your confidence resting? Watching a YouTube clip the other day of Hillsong's doing a Christmas concert in London and it was very clear where their confidence lies. It seems that it lies locked into showmanship, seductive dance and worldly razzmatazz in order, they believe, for God's message to make some kind of impact. I myself considered it nothing but absolute profanity. Are we confident that God has the wherewithal to change lives through us without depending on human cleverness or worthy wisdom? Are, are, are we confident? Because I believe if we truly are, there would be a lot more action on our parts. There would be a lot more living for God's glory on our parts. There will be a lot more testimony and letters that are read with a lot more clarity on our part. Paul is adamant that taking this kind of a pragmatic approach where we deceitfully smooch pagans into the kingdom, it is not of God, it's of the devil. He tells us in 1 Corinthians 1 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know God, God was well pleased through, listen to this, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. The world may think it's foolish, folks, but the gospel preached through us as letters is what he longs and loves to use for his glory. Paul understood that he was not adequate in himself and that we should not consider anything as coming from ourselves. And as I was thinking about that, you know what? If there was anyone who could have ever used human achievement and wisdom, and even religion, to persuade people, it was Apostle Paul. Right? He could have called upon more—he could have called upon more academic and human religious credentials than you could poke a stick at. He was right up there. But what does he see himself as? Inadequate in and of himself. A clay pot. But he understands fully that he has been made adequate, made sufficient sufficient as a servant of a new covenant. In other words, Paul is saying here, I am inadequate to serve the Lord in and of myself, but my sufficiency and my adequacy to preach the gospel, to testify to others of Jesus Christ, to be a letter that exonerates Christ, and to make the truth of the new covenant, that is the gospel truth that gives believers eternal life, I understand that I, if I and I confidently trust in God's power working through me to deliver. And that's what we should want too, right? Is that the kind of confidence we have in the gospel, folks? Because what we are confident in, we're all confident in something. You may call it a lack of confidence, in some things. But we're all we all have levels of confidence. What we're confident, you know what? It will be made evident in our lives. So when I see wishy washy Christians, I understand that they have not going to go no confidence in Christ. And so what they're trying to do is have a foot in both camps kind of thing, you know? And let's just cruise our way through. It don't work. All I would say to that kind of person, examine yourself whether you are in the faith. The ministry of the gospel is God's power that gives eternal life and it changes life in the here and now. Not like the law, this is what Paul says right at the end here, not like the law of God written on tables of stone. That only proves one thing, it proves our depravity, our inability to be holy and acceptable to God. That only ever proves, the law of God only ever proves in all its beauty and its perfection, it only ever proves that we are born breakers of God's law. It kills us. But praise the Lord, there is Jesus Christ, a new promise from God, a new covenant, whereby the Spirit of God gives eternal life. May 2016, as we approach it, be a year where, we, where our lives spell out a letter of, from Christ. That we have greater confidence through Christ toward God as we serve the Lord in our homes, as we serve the Lord in our workplaces and in the church. May God bless his word to us this morning. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we bow before you this morning with absolute confidence knowing that you have heard every word said here this morning. But not only that, you have searched and known every single thought, atom of thought, of every person here in this congregation. Search our hearts, Lord, we pray. Challenge us with the word. May we know what it is to trust in Jesus Christ and in him alone through faith alone. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the new covenant. Lord, build us up and may our confidence and sufficiency in Christ be increasingly seen and read in our lives every day. So, Father, we commit ourselves to you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ and the people of God. said
1: To your holy place How can I